And thank you, Glenn, for what you shared because I don't know for many others, but in so many ways it resonates with me. The eternal quality of Jesus' life and salvation has both a future and present reality to it. This future promise, which people like Bobby and Robin and TJ will pin their hopes on this afternoon. Chase is okay. Chase is whole. Chase is not suffering anymore. That's real. But there's also a present reality to that eternal presence, which, to use Glenn's words, makes us better people. At least I th- has been for me. Some of you may say, well, I haven't seen it yet. Well, then that's something I need to work on. But it does. It makes us better people, makes us whole people. I talked with the group this morning, the 10 o'clock class, and I asked a question, who is Jesus to you? And I just loved all the responses. One thing I learned in asking that question is Jesus is very different to all of us. And that's okay because it comes out of our experience. It comes out of our journey, and our journeys and our experiences are shaped everything from how we were raised to negative stuff to positive stuff to how we have encountered love and grace and mercy at this stage in our life. What I want to do for a few moments, and we may have time even at the end to just reflect a little bit, is to focus on part of this passage that Rick read as God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, I've never actually built a building or house myself. I'm not a builder. One thing I'm pretty sure of, though, is you cannot build anything until you lay the foundation. You may want to put up walls. You may want to put on the ceiling. You may have a good idea of what you want for the windows, but none of that matters until the foundation's laid. Foundations matter. Getting the foundation right is important. A deep river friends, a structure, has a foundation for this building. It was laid many, many years ago, and that foundation has held up for many, many years. And we hope it holds up for many, many more years. If there's a portion of it that isn't, we'll let you know, and you can sit on the other side. Now, there's a deeper foundation that sustains us, though. It's what I read on the back of the bulletin, the foundation articulated. These are foundational statements, statements that best as possible describe why we are and why we do what we do and who we are. Knowing our foundations are key. It's the foundation that ends up giving shape to the structure, whether it's a building, whether it's a life, or whether it's even a faith community. So getting the foundation is right. That's why a cornerstone was often used to make the foundation correct. Now, when I hear that phrase, I imagine Paul writing the Ephesians and taking a walk outside and trying to come up with a way to describe the importance of Christ in their life, not only individually but also as a faith community. And he comes upon this building, the foundation of the building, and it catches his eye, and he sees in the very corner a cornerstone, and he thinks that's it. Because that day and in many other days to follow, the cornerstone was the foundation stone. It was the stone that was the first one set. And all the other stones would be set in reference to that stone. So in order for everything else to be right, you had to get that cornerstone right. And so Paul sees that 
Everything is in reference to that stone. And so he thinks in his mind, as he writes to the Ephesians, as God's household, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, everything that came before you with Christ as the cornerstone. In other words, this is your reference point, people of Ephesus, Christians of Ephesus. And for many to follow, this is our reference point, Paul says, Christ as the cornerstone. So for Paul, what is important for a faith community and for the lives that make up that community is this solid foundation that has a good cornerstone. And for Paul, that necessary cornerstone is the living Christ. So the starting point as a faith community is this living Christ, the present Christ, the real presence of Christ. Now, this might be one of those aspects where one would say, and you might say, well, you know, that should go without saying. It's just obvious But it probably needs to be said, or it needs to be reaffirmed and highlighted because it can be easily, that is, the reference point, even in faith communities, can easily be co-opted by other reference points or other starting points or other focuses. I've been thumbing through a book by an author named Jeannie Miley, and I'm actually going to the next week or so, uh, probably this week, is send out some titles because it's a wonderful book that helps me explore again who Jesus is in my life. And here's what she has to say. Today, more than 2,000 years since Jesus walked and talked on this earth, inspiring and changing people by his actual presence, many people are not related to the living Christ who is at the center of our faith. But, and this is how she describes how sometimes the reference points can change and even in faith communities. But they're related to one of the leaders of the movement, maybe the institutional church, Maybe a ritual, a set of doctrines, laws and rules, or cultural and social norms. Maybe the organization. Maybe a committee that serves the organization. Maybe someone's self-serving idea of what the movement is, or the meetings, or holy days, or social gatherings of the organization, or maybe the members of the organization. And then she writes, soon, when your connection is only one of these peripheral touch points, the living, dynamic connection to the founder of the faith dissipates unless there is an intentional effort to stay connected to that center. Very simply put, it's easy even as churches to get distracted by a lot of other peripheral issues and not have as that center, that focus, Christ. I'll never forget years ago, we were just talking about this, my family. My dad preached a sermon at First Friends Marion. And it was one of those sermons where we were sitting there and, you know, you hear your dad preach and you kind of get an idea of what he's going to say and his style and his approach. And I remember him preaching a sermon that we all just kind of looked at each other and said, he didn't just say that, did he? And I think I looked at mom thinking, are we even going to be here next week? Marrying First Friends, Indiana, had two things that they had every year. Two things religiously, and I use that word intentionally. Chicken noodle dinners. They have here in the south barbecues. Up in the north, they have chicken noodle dinners. And they spend hours making those noodles. They, they hand make them. They put them out on wax paper. They let them. I mean, this is good stuff. This is like thick broth that you could take with a fork, you know, and it's got wonderful chicken. And people come in, and they have it twice a year, and they raise the money, and they start, I don't know, like Monday or Tuesday, making all this all through the week. And, you know, it was just this huge experience. 
And so we had the chicken noodle dinner on Saturday, and the next Sunday, Dad got up to preach a sermon. And I don't remember his exact words, but I remember he went there. And I remember him simply saying, you know, friends, if we spent as much time on outreach and loving people into the kingdom through programs that share Christ with them as we do the chicken noodle dinners, I wonder how much different things would be. And we were just like, all right, he went there. (laughs) He just stepped on that third rail. And we lasted a few more years there, and we still had chicken noodle dinners. But in some ways, I was never more proud of my father, identifying the fact that if we're not careful, even religious institutions can get distracted by things that feel important but are peripheral to the main focus of why God brings people together in faith communities. It's a great risk of busy and active churches that of losing their first love. Revelations talks about this. Or their love for Christ grows cold and they simply go through the motions. And like individuals, churches can feel empty when there's no spiritual intimacy. And so they fill that emptiness with activity and crazy busyness and all the trivial stuff. And it, it happens. It's normal. We do it in our own life. But it can happen in organizations as well. I came across an article I told how on September 18, 1793, President George Washington climbed into a trench and he set a silver plate on the ground and he told the builders to lower the cornerstone of the Capitol building of the United States on that silver plate. September 18, 1793. So in September of 1993, the historic moment was to be reenacted. The only problem, and this should surprise nobody, they couldn't find the stone. They had no idea where it was. Nobody was sure where the stone was. Somehow the cornerstone was lost. Eventually, team searched. They found what they thought was a cornerstone. The silver plate wasn't with it, but they said, it's a stone, it's square, it's in the general vicinity, we're going to call it the cornerstone. I thought about that. I thought about how foundations as a faith community can sometimes lose track of that cornerstone, the cornerstone of our life, whether it's organizationally, or whether it's personally, sometimes gets lost. We lose track. We can't find it anymore. We've got to find our way back. So yes, what am I saying? I'm saying, how can we as a faith community make sure that we keep as our reference point, as the source of who we are and what we do, the living Christ, as our life together, as our work together, as our mission together? As we live with Christ as the cornerstone of our life together, we're keeping very good company with our Quaker spiritual forefathers and foremothers. For them, the experience of the living Christ was central to their journey as well. It was the founder of the Quaker movement, Fox, who wrote in his journal that he couldn't find any answers from the priests, professors, and pastors for his spiritual restlessness. He went to human people. He went to clergy. He went to officials. He then encountered the living Christ in a very real and personal way, and he writes this. And this is one of, the, one of the more memorable quotes of Quakers. And when all my hopes in them and all men were gone, so that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could tell what to do, then I heard a voice which said, There is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to my condition. And when I heard it, my heart did leap for joy. 
In other words, Paul is saying, I realize, George is saying, I realize I don't need any one particular to encounter Christ. Christ comes to me directly. And later on, friends had a wonderful phrase, Christ is here to teach his people himself. It's good to have Bible teachers. It's good to have sermons. It's good to have messages. It's good to read books. But here's the truth, friends. You and I can listen and hear Christ directly. We have the best teacher living within us that we could ever have. If we listen, if we pay attention, if I'm conscious of what Christ is speaking to me and telling me. I mentioned earlier Jeannie Miley, and she writes this about her own search for Jesus and her own spiritual search. She says, I'll admit it. I'm cautious, especially when it comes to Jesus. I've had a long relationship with Jesus, although it might be more accurate to say that my relationship with Jesus has evolved over time. I've wondered and worried if that relationship has been with Jesus himself, with my ideas about Jesus, or with others' ideas about Jesus that I either accepted or rebelled against. Have I thought that I had a relationship with Jesus when in reality my primary connection was with my church? Did I ever think that observing and keeping the rites, rituals, having the right doctrine, going through the motions, or Doing the right thing as defined by certain authority figures was the same as having a personal, vital, dynamic love relationship with the living Christ. I've been told that I overthink things, but I'm not sure that I do when it comes to something as important as a relationship with the living Christ. Or as Paul's imagery is, with the living Christ as my reference point for daily living. And let me just share real briefly about that, and we'll close here in a few moments. But part of my own personal spiritual journey, quite honestly, as a pastoral minister, was I realized that at some point, my own encounter and journey with Jesus became something more than just part of my resume, and that's easy to do. In other words, it's who I talk about. It's what I do. I remember very distinctly years ago, and I don't know if Linda remembers this, didn't check this out whether before I said this. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going with the flow right now. But we were having a conversation about spirituality and, and growing spiritually. And we were talking about prayer. And I'll never forget she said something to me which was very honest and very real. And she says, well, she says, you have to remember, you get paid to do that. In other words, live in the real world here, Buster. Eight hours a day, you have time to read the Bible and pray and talk to God. I have to go work and make money. I said, at that point, you're so right, honey. I'm so wrong. No, I didn't. I think I just sort of (laughs) slinked down and says, I'm going to have to think about that. (coughs) Point being is, in many ways, she was right. For years, my acquaintance with Jesus was more than just my calling card. This is what I do, and this is who I talk about. I began to explore in a deeper way what does it mean not only to have a relationship with the living Christ, but his life becomes the way that I live, to live in the way of Jesus. And I came across, for me, what has been a real linchpin passage, and we all have them, but I remember reading one day out of Philippians 2, 
where Paul just simply writes this to the Philippians. I'll start with verse 3. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself. And I just sort of stopped right there. And I began to realize all the stuff that I needed to empty myself of so that I could become, to use Glenn's words, a better person, a person that's more whole, so that salvation for me was something more than just what I could experience when I die, but salvation was this experience now that was making me whole again. And at least for me, for Scott Wagner, it involved seeing that Jesus emptied himself on behalf of others, and I began to explore what does it mean to empty myself For me, it meant things like I didn't always have to have the last word. For me, it meant I don't always have to think I'm right. For me, it meant if I wasn't invited into that argument, I don't need to invite myself. For me, it meant sometimes I just had to let some things go. For me, it meant being and paying attention to the people in my life and looking at what their needs were and realizing my needs don't always come first. Do you catch what I'm saying? In many ways, that experience showed me living in the way of Jesus isn't just, for me, an hour a day, something I talk about. It became a living, breathing, challenging, inspiring experience on a daily basis. In our relationship with others, how we treat others, how we understand our calling and responsibility towards those that are less fortunate, how we understand the place of peace and nonviolence in our life, how we're to live simply so that others can simply live, and how we come to understand ourselves in light of God's love for us. So I leave you with a couple things first. I want to encourage you to engage in a journey of exploration, exploring who Jesus is to you and for you. But I want to challenge you also to lay your assumptions your skepticism, even your awkwardness, and maybe your embarrassment aside, and open yourself up to this revelation of the living Christ in your life. To maybe even move beyond a faith that's maybe possibly calcified. Maybe it's become kind of formal. Maybe it's become somewhat just kind of secondary. Again, it's just something that's just kind of out here. And open yourself to a new heart, a new experience, a fresh encounter with Christ. I want to close with these words by a Quaker. Her name is Sandra Cronk, a wonderful writer, spiritual director, has passed away, but she wrote these words, and these really speak to me. Christ is the window through whom we may see God's redemptive love for the world most clearly. When we look at Christ's life and teaching, we see something startling about the way God works in our midst. For in Christ's life, which is the embodiment of God's love, we see an understanding of peace which turns upside down many of the accepted categories of human interaction. If anything, I want you to catch that one phrase, Christ is the window through whom we may see God's redemptive love for the world most clearly. So who is Jesus for you? 
Who is Christ in your life? Where is Christ in your life? How have you grown? Where do you need to grow? And what is the cornerstone and reference point for all that you do and how you live and how you decide?